Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, flying solo today, uh, as my co-host Rob Hunt is literally flying. Um, so as a result, he cannot be with us. Uh, Rob sends his love and his good thoughts, and uh, will be joining us again next week. As always, my producer, uh, our producer from the show, Dan Humiston, is here, and uh, he'll be filling in as needed, especially when we get into the kind of complicated uh business stuff that we would typically turn to Rob for at that point when I my eyes glaze over and I say, Rob, what do you have to say about that? Um, so we'll see how that goes. We've got a great show for everyone today that uh, is a show that I was at way back in 1987, Alpine Valley, June 27th. It's the second of an amazing three-night run. Um, and uh, let's just get right to it, Dan, and spin the first track of the song we're going to hear from the show. Thanks, Dan. Well, um, anyone who was lucky enough to ever see the dead knows that there are few things as exciting as seeing the boys come out and open the night with an Ico Ico. Uh, it's a great tune. It's uh, always upbeat. Everybody starts dancing really hard. Um, it is the tune that got me on the bus uh, so many years ago. However, at that point, it was coming out of space, um, which actually fit in very nicely at that moment, and I'm sure played a big part into uh how I uh, how I really uh, did uh, follow them and get on the bus after that. But Ico is just a great tune. And, uh, you know, Jerry's always happy when he plays it. And this is a great one with Jerry really belting out the hay nows and uh, uh, getting a little energy into it and the crowd uh, shouting back. But it's just a great way to start a show. They, they come out and, you know, before anything, boom, it's right into Ico Ico. And this night, I have to give them credit. Instead of then rolling right into Little Red Rooster, instead they went into Greatest Story Ever Told, uh, which is another great uh, tune we've uh, – uh, been lucky enough to feature that quite a bit lately, um, so we won't uh, necessarily go into that one right now, uh, but we do have a lot of music on tap for today. Uh, this is a fantastic show, and it was tough to just pick uh, uh, a certain number of clips, so I picked a whole lot of clips and figured without Rob here, uh, we'd really dive into the music and maybe give my vocal cords a rest uh, at different points throughout. Um, and we've got some very interesting news stories, and I think uh, one of the very first ones we have is one that's, that at the end of the day isn't really all that surprising. And I think that it's one that we um, kind of suspected was going to eventually make its way onto the scene. Basically, what we're talking about here is the poor labeling that really uh, inaccurate strain names and poor labeling that hinder the marijuana industry uh, in its efforts to uh, uh, be fully transparent and um uh, out front in terms of disclosures of what the product is to the industry people. And, you know, when you read through this, you know, my joke with uh, Rob the other day when we had been talking about this was, you know, trying to understand sometimes what any of these labels mean is, you know, not unlike trying to figure out what Giacomo Finane means uh, in ICO, which we just heard, right? It's, it's just one of those things we all sing along to it. We don't really care. And we all go and we buy our marijuana and we don't really care. But what this study is finding 
um, may change your mind. So this is made up of a, a study from researchers from uh, CU Boulder and from Leafly. And as I dive into this, I just want to, as always, give thanks to MJ Biz. Uh, they're a tremendous source of news in the cannabis industry and uh, are a big source of the news that we turn to on this program. And a uh, number of these stories we're going to talk about today came from MJ Biz, and they're great folks, and I like to give them a shout out whenever we can. So we have this research uh, from Colorado uh, in Boulder, of course, right, the, the, the anchor uh, campus of the University of Colorado. Uh, and with Leafly, they published in a study in a, in a publication called PLOS, P-L-O-S-1, back in May. And what they found is that cannabis labels, and this is the important part, do not consistently align with the observed chemical diversity of the product. This is a little, you know, I think surprising. Every state has a uh, very strict regulations. Products have to be tested. There have to be labels. The labels have to be accurate. And they have to be able to advise the consumer of exactly what it is the consumer is purchasing so the consumer can make an informed decision, right? It would be like going into a liquor store and saying, well, this is liquor, but nobody telling you what the proof is. Uh, so you don't know if you're buying something like beer that's only seven proof or if you're buying something like Everclear that's 90 proof. And, uh, you know, th that's just a problem. Um, and I know you can't really be 90 proof, 50 proof is a hundred percent, but whatever, uh, it is what it is. Um, people don't like that. And, and, and basically what the study found was that the labels that are currently being used are inadequate to communicate to the consumers, uh, you know, enough information regarding the full range of cannabinoids, terpenes, uh, that are present in the product information, which could really help the consumer, um, understand the plant better and i think you know it's also you want to be able to make sure that you're making an informed purchasing decision if you walk into a cannabis store um you know unless it's your first time you don't really know what you're doing at some point along the way you want to be able to reach up and you want to be able to pull down and say this is what i want this is how i know and yes part of it may be experience but before you get that experience uh, it, it really helps to know um, what you're doing. And the guys in the study, uh, one of the co-authors of the report, uh, a guy named uh, Ryan Keegan, who's from uh, CU Boulder, uh, posed a hypothetical. He said, it's as if you go in to buy a cereal box and all it showed was calories um, and, and really nothing else. Um, you know, it showed calories maybe in fat content, but it showed you nothing else. How would you really know? Uh, what you're buying at that time and, and the choice and, and the answer is uh, you really wouldn't and you know it, it's no different with cannabis we want to know uh, what we're buying and what we're putting in our body now this is where it really gets technical and you know Dan I'll let you pay attention if I say something stupid just cut me off because I'm going way outside my comfort zone here um, but the cannabis flower falls into three primary categories that are high in terpene combinations. So meaning the cannabis flower that's being sold legally in the country today uh, when tested as part of this uh, study primarily fell into three, to these three categories um, uh, that involve three different terpene combinations. Uh, the first one is carophylline and limonene. The second one is myrcene and pinene. And the third one is terpinaline and myrcene again. Now, that means that uh, when you're buying cannabis, it's very likely that whatever cannabis you're buying is falling into one of these three terp combinations. They're very popular. Uh, they taste good. They present good. Um, and the cultivators and the dispensary owners have discovered uh, that they can really go far when you have good smell and everything else in addition uh, to be able to, to getting good results 
uh, on the other end. So the report came back and said, you know, it would be really good to move away from these clusters of terpenes that they're not exclusive of what uh, people can metabolize uh, when they smoke marijuana or what can be produced by the producers. And more importantly, uh, the point they made at the, the three categories that we discussed about do not fit into any uh, simple to follow uh, name scheme when we talk about sativa, indica, or hybrid. And so as a result, it's a very ineffective branding method because really at the end of the day, the point that they make, and, I, and I've heard this said a lot, that really everything winds up being a hybrid and that you get something that's a pure sativa or that's a pure indica, notwithstanding what the label might tell you, is just very, very rare. This study brings tremendous value to the industry, though, I think, because it's the largest study so far uh, of any regulated modern cannabis profiles. And, you know, in terms of brand trust building, uh, it's going to be very important. One of the things that the authors suggest that to me makes a lot of sense is instead of trying to condense everything down onto a label, uh, why don't we regulate that on products? We have to start putting a QR code uh, that allows purchasers to scan it in and immediately go to a full copy of the lab report that's produced on the product. And you can break it down both technically for the, 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 the dweebs of the world. And I say that endearingly because Rob and I call ourselves Grateful Dead dweebs. So uh, I'm sure there's uh, those types as well. Um, but you can also simplify the information, you know, for people who aren't going to understand it on a more technical technical level and uh it could be a really really good thing it's what the industry is recommending um you know from these studies that were done is it going to take all hold i can't tell you um but what i can tell you is it's probably important to listen and, and, and we've talked about for a long long time uh that if you go into a dispensary in california and if you buy something that they're calling blue dream out there and then two weeks later you're in michigan and you buy blue dream there it seems highly improbable that those are going to be identical strains uh, and they may not even really necessarily fall into the same terp category we were talking about uh, or uh, any of the other similar profile uh, markers that are looked at uh, to measure strains. And you can't have a successful medical industry. And the truth is you can't even really have a successful adult use industry that's going to cross state lines if there isn't some similarity for people uh, so that when they go and they order a strain that they know, they can be reasonably certain that what they're getting uh, is going to be very, very similar, both in terms of makeup, smell, taste, and most importantly, uh, the impact it's going to have on them. So we'll see where this goes. And uh, I'm glad um, uh, that there's people who are looking into it and, and bringing it out into the open. And uh, hopefully we'll see uh, other leaders in the industry stepping in and trying to figure out ways to do this. And of course, one last thing, it would certainly help if the government would get off its butt and legalize marijuana or at a minimum make some changes so that we can get uh, trademarks for marijuana products. If somebody can go and trademark the Blue Dream strain, uh, then that means anyone else who wants to grow Blue Dream and use that name will have to make sure that it measures up to the, uh, the chemical makeup of the Blue Dream that, that's, gotten the, uh, that's gotten the trademark. And that includes licensing and things like that. And of course, the owner of the trademark will then be responsible, anyone it license the name, licenses the name to, to make sure that it provides those people with very, very strict instructions and, on growing and uh, everything that has to be done to ensure uh, that you get the, the best uh, output possible, uh, both in terms of how closely it mimics the strain or is the same as the strain you're shooting for, and how good is it just in general in terms of 
marijuana. So we'll see, but hopefully that's going to happen. I think it would make a huge difference in this industry uh, if they could do that, and we'll go from there. Swinging back to our show for a minute, I've got another clip that I'm going to play, and just to give it 30 seconds of lead-in, it's probably one of my favorite Jerry Garcia tunes. It was certainly one of the very few Grateful Dead songs I knew before I ever started singing the Grateful Dead. Uh, and as a result, anytime they would play it, uh, it was always a lot of fun for me to think, oh, here I am, a big deadhead, and and you know, here's Friend of the Devil. In fact, the first time I saw the album uh, Dead Set that came out with Reckoning, the live album uh, from the shows uh, in 1980 at Radio City and the... Um, well, I'll think of the name and put it back in here in a few minutes, uh, auditorium in uh, the Warfield in San Francisco. And I remember looking at that album, Dead Set, and the only song on the entire album whose name I recognized was this one we're going to play right now. So go ahead, Dan, if you'll spin it. Devil is going to be a song that anyone's going to recognize, and, and you really have to be uh, uh, off the grid, I think. Uh, it's a tune that gets played regularly on uh, standard FM stations. Um, it's been covered by a number of different bands. Lyle Lovett's band has covered it, and they do a really, really good job with it. Um, just as a quick shout out, it was the favorite song, it is the favorite song of uh, one of my good deadhead buddies from back in the day, Steve Stefano, who used to, who did go to Ann Arbor with me and we'd go out to see a lot of shows and drove around to catch quite a few. And Steve was the man who could just drive all night and uh, get us to where we needed to go and still have enough energy to take it up and boogie through the show. And um, uh, he loved that tune. And anytime I hear it, it always makes me think of him. So shout out to Steve Stefano. Hope you're doing well, my friend. But yeah, Friend of the Devil is just, uh, I think, Jerry and, and Robert Hunter at their finest. Uh, of course, on the um, uh, American Beauty album, we have David Grisman playing uh, the mandolin on it as well. Uh, and he just adds a really special sound to it. And then, of course, there is the uh, mysterious extroverse of Friend of the Devil um, that the dead with Jerry never sang. Um, but quite a few dead cover bands, including uh, Phil and Friends have sang it, and I know Bobby's done it with his band, and I think Dead & Company have even sang it and added on the last verse that Hunter wrote after, uh, I don't know if he wrote it after the dead had already recorded the song, but certainly after Jerry had played around with it and, and gotten comfortable with it, and Jerry's excuse always was, I had learned the damn song, I wasn't going to change it, you know, just because Hunter decided to add more lyrics, 
And uh, Hunter uh, decided not to make an issue out of it. So Friend of the Devil is the way we know it. But uh, you can you can Google it and listen to it. And there's this extra verse that they that they throw in that that Hunter did write, and that uh, is is in in all truth and fairness part of the song, uh, certainly as the author has deemed it. But uh, for those of us who go by what Jerry says, it's just uh, an extra verse that you know the other people can sing whenever they want to, and doesn't really bother us all that much. Um, but Friend of the Devil is great. It shows up on so many of their uh, released shows because it's just such a great song. And um, uh, it, it was really wonderful that night. This was this was just a great night at uh, Alpine Valley. We haven't done a lot of talking about Alpine Valley specifically, but it's about an hour and a half north of Chicago, assuming there's no traffic. But usually there was terrible traffic, so it would take three or four hours. We'd drive up through Lake Geneva and go on a bunch of Wisconsin highways and then get off on some road and uh, single file road while all these cars getting off the highway uh, and you'd go down to a stop sign literally and make a left turn and drive down along by uh, all these farms and the Wisconsin State Police used to have a lot of fun and at the stop sign where everybody would make a left turn every year there'd be a van parked there with the hood up and it'd give the impression that it was a minivan a, a, a deadhead who uh, uh, had had some bad luck and was on his way to the show and Maybe they'd hang a, uh, a tie-dye shirt or uh, blanket outside on front of it. And there'd always be some forlorn deadhead sitting up on top, just kind of hanging out. And uh, he'd have a tie-dye T-shirt on. He'd have a pair of shorts on. Um, but he always had on those uh, those telltale wingtips and black socks. And uh, the cops were not smart enough to change their shoes. And they'd sit there and look down on the cars while we were driving by. And if they saw alcohol, really, but I suppose anything – They'd radio ahead, and after you made the left turn and drove past the barn, there'd be a whole bunch of cops sitting back there waiting to just pull you over. Um, and so you had to learn those kind of things along the way. Um, but Alpine Valley was also a ski resort, and so it had a little hotel. And again, guys who were really in the know, and I was never one of them, uh, could go ahead and get reservations there. You could pull in once on Friday night and not have to touch your car again until you left on Sunday. Um, but otherwise, it was a great pavilion in, in terms of sheds. It was it was really one of the nicer pavilions around, and it had a just a tremendous lawn, which was such a distinctive feature of it. Just it went up so high and and didn't flare out to the side as much as uh, lawns and other sheds do throughout the Midwest. It was just uh, it was a great place to see the show. There was plenty of parking, and the joke always was uh, that it took you longer to get out of the lot than it did to sit through the show because uh, they literally pulled you onto a golf course and. Uh, tried to make some order of, of how the cars were parked. Uh, but invariably we'd all just get blocked in and, uh, you know, you'd have to sit there and wait all night for two or three people to move in order for 50 cars to be freed up, uh, and be able to go forward. And, uh, one other quick shout out to my good buddy, Larry Van Oker, who we're still trying to get on this show one of these days when he went with us to see the, uh, uh, Terrapin band family reunion there in, uh, 2002, uh, we had parked in the lot. And um, by that point, Larry uh, had gone sober and, and still is sober after all of these years. And a shout out to him for that. Uh, it's a great accomplishment by a guy who back in the day was uh, as big a partier as anybody at the Dead Shows. And we're all very happy that uh, Larry's cleaned up a little bit and I should say a whole lot of bit. And uh, he's here with us and we're just out in California in February. My wife and I, we got to spend some time with him and uh, it was great to see him and uh, uh, to be able to catch up and everything with him on that. And um, and so the thing about Larry was he saw, you know, 350 or 60 shows and he'd been to everywhere and he'd been to Alpine Valley as many times as any of us. And he was a problem solver. And we came out after that show and all of us, you know, were a bit uh, 
uh, lightheaded, as it were. And uh, we all found our car and got in and sat there, and it was clear we weren't going anywhere for a long time. And Larry, in a moment of uh, enlightenment and uh, energy, uh, you know, yelled for whoever was driving to get out of the driver's seat. He hopped over from the back seat, got the driver's seat. And how he did it, I don't know, but we got out of the parking lot in 10 minutes. Uh, and he turned left and he turned right. And I just stopped looking and figured he's going to get us out. And he did. And he had a classic line at the end, which was, God damn it, all those years at Alpine Valley, at least I know how to get out of the damn parking lot. So uh, we applauded him and uh, still applaud him to this day. Um, but Alpine was great. And for the first few years, they'd let you camp out, like right up to the point where you were could camp out right across a little driveway from where you literally walk into the show and then spread out as far out as people wanted to go. And in later years, they started to restrict more and more where people could camp, um, which was unfortunate and really kind of took away from the fun because I think the people who camped out there uh, were, were deadheads, meaning that they were out there to have fun and adventure and party and maybe get a little bit loud with their music, but none of them were going to be violent. None of them were going to destroy property. And um, it, was, it was just a really fun place to be uh, when everybody else went home at the end of the night. Uh, there was still some deadheads hanging around and, and the party never ended. Um, it was really, really a lot of fun. So Alpine Valley is great. I'm going to go see fish there this summer. I'm very excited about that, both to get back to Alpine Valley and to see fish there. Um, I've seen fish a few times in a number of venues and I, uh, in the Chicago area, and I think that I tend to like them best there, although I will confess that I missed them at Wrigley Field, uh, and I'm sure that those were wonderful shows too. Speaking of Wrigley Field, uh, I'll be heading there this weekend. Now, when I say this weekend, what I really mean is last weekend for those of you, because this show drops on Monday. This show drops on Monday, June 27th, uh, but the preceding uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, we will have all been at uh, Wrigley Field in Chicago, hanging out and catching the dead Friday, June 24th, and Saturday, June 25th. And when I say the dead, of course, I mean dead and company. Um, but that's as close to the dead as we're going to get these days. And quite frankly, any excuse to be able to go to Wrigley Field and smoke or join us with me. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, sounds like the boys have really been playing well. They uh, played a show in St. Louis last night, uh, and they broke out Box of Rain. Um, which was really exciting for everyone because, of course, Box of Rain is the Phil Lesh song, and Phil Lesh is not part of Dead & Company. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they went ahead and played it anyway. Uh, it got rave reviews by the people who were there. A uh, special shout-out to Cousin Brent and my brother Stephen, who has always teamed up and had a fun night at the show, sent me everything, even including the uh, the uh, sound checklist, uh, the way that place is set up in St. Louis, even if you're standing outside. Uh, you, you can catch most of the uh, most of the sound check, and that's a lot of fun. And uh, they had a chance to do that, so thank you to them for uh, cluing me in on everything that was going on uh, down in St. Louis. And now we're excited to see them at Wrigley Field this week, and uh, that should be great. Now, speaking of a um, Phil Lesh tune, uh, we've got another one to spin here from the Alpine Valley show, and this is, in fact. Not a Phil Lesh tune. It's a Bob Dylan tune that that uh, Phil Lesh uh, uh, got to sing with the dead. And it was one of those songs that, uh, well, let's play it, and then I'll talk about it afterwards. Now I started out on Hanukkah, but I soon hit the hardest of. Everybody's holding things beside me. The joke was 
Tom Thumb Blues, it's a great tune by Dylan. It's really a lot of fun, and Phil uh, picks it up and, and, and really, you know, kind of makes it his own. He likes to change the lyrics in there, and, I, you know, my best friend, instead of my doctor, who won't even tell me what it is I've got, it becomes my best friend, my drummer, who won't even tell me what it is I've dropped. Uh, and then at the end, of course, he's always messing around with, I'm going back to, of course, Dylan says New York City. Phil says that sometimes. Sometimes he says San Francisco. Sometimes he says San Anselmo. In Washington, D.C., he likes to throw in Foggy Bottom. Uh, but it's really great. It's a lot of fun. And we all kind of got used to, to, to that being a tune that Phil would sing um, in uh, 85 and 86 once uh, Phil stepped back in front of the microphone again. Um, and there weren't a whole lot of other tunes uh, that Phil was necessarily singing up to that point. And so uh, we all gladly took Tom Thumb Blues and appreciated it. And then we got to March 20th, 1986, uh, which was in Hampton Beach, Virginia. And a whole group of us were out there. And I happened to be standing next to my good buddy, John Siegel. So shout out to John, uh, also another Michigan guy. And it was at the end of the first set. And Phil stepped up to the microphone and played the first few notes. And John turns to me and goes, Tom Thumb's Blues. And I said, I guess so. And then, of course, he immediately melted it into Box of Rain. Uh, our jaws hit the floor, uh, although shouldn't have been surprised. John was with me in 1983 in the garden when we saw the St. Stephen breakout. So uh, he had that kind of good karma. If he was there, uh, it was a good chance we were going to get something like that. And, um, you know, so that night we got uh, we got a box of rain. It was wonderful. But this night at Alpine Valley, uh, we got a great Tom Thumbs Blues. And just anytime you get Phil Lesh up on stage and you get him singing, and, you know, really making him part of the evening. Uh, I think it just adds so much more uh, to the overall show and uh, to the performance by the band. You know, in the early years, he was such an integral part of all of their vocals and harmonies and uh, strange noises and weird yells and shout outs and stuff like that. Uh, but God love him. You know, he's still around and uh, uh, 82 or 83 now doing uh, some shows this summer in various places, uh, including coming to Chicago for the Sacred Roses Festival at the end of August. Uh, where his Phil and Friends group will include Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, uh, which we are very, very excited to see um, and should be a very cool thing. So, yeah, Phil Lesh still doing it, and uh, he was certainly doing it that night, which was wonderful to see. We've talked a lot about how the dead covering uh, Dylan was uh, was a, um, uh, a portal, if you will, uh, you know, for getting all of us from um, uh, one kind of music into another, and especially into Dylan once the dead started playing it. Um, it just naturally became something for me to focus on more and more. And I didn't, you know, I, I liked to listen to the songs that they were playing and learn all the lyrics and that it evidently led me to a whole bunch of other uh, Dylan lyrics. But you know, he, he just has some classic ones, not, you know, unlike Robert Hunter and, you know, some of his classic ones that, uh, you know, when you, when you hear them, they just really make you laugh. And in uh, Tom Thumb's Blues, uh, there's a great line in there uh, where he's singing, if you're looking to get silly, you should go back from where you came because the cops don't need you and, man, they expect the same. And, you know, he, he's, he's, he's goofing on the cops a little bit there, and that's Dylan's style, and that's okay, and it fits into the overall theme of the story he's telling. But as we always like to do here, you know, you can take those lyrics and you can kind of apply them. Uh, to some other things that are going on in the cannabis industry that we need to talk about. And as long as, you know, we've got cops in the mix, uh, they're trying to make you look silly. Southern Oregon law enforcement 
has really started to put the hammer down uh, on illegal grows uh, that are taking place out there. And they recently seized more than 12,000 plants from a single site, 32 greenhouses in Jackson County, which is in the southern part of the state. According to them, uh, the property had been under investigation for at least a month, uh, and they were able to figure out what they wanted to do. Uh, so in early June, they also in Jackson County, they busted three other additional unlicensed operations, seizing nearly 4,000 plants there. Uh, and over 1,300 pounds of processed illicit market marijuana products. Uh, I love it how they call it illicit market now instead of black market, but it is, in fact, the same thing. So again, boom, uh, they're out to get people. And then Douglas County also came back and reported that it had, in its words, eradicated uh, illegal marijuana from five sites, another uh, 8,000 plants. Um, and and uh, the locals are saying that this is this is this this uh, level of enforcement and crackdown on the illegal grows is a scale uh, unlike anything they've ever seen. But maybe it's not so surprising because last year uh, the Oregon legislature uh, did in fact set aside twenty five million dollars uh, to begin to crack down on illegal marijuana operations. And so, you know, that's really how we find ourselves in this position. I shouldn't say we, I should really say the folks in Southern Oregon uh, who are growing illegally. Now, of course, the easy answer that any, anyone will give is there's a pathway to being legal now. Go ahead and be legal. But when you're talking about some of these guys in Oregon, some of the legacy growers, it's not really that different from the Green Triangle in California. Uh, a lot of these folks have been out there growing forever. And, you know, they're, they're really the the forebearers of uh, whatever cannabis industry it is that we have today. Uh, they were the ones who first developed the strains. They were the ones who first, you know, developed the concept of, uh, of, of, of large-scale processing and distribution and, you know, basically making the product available to the masses, not just in California, uh, but very quickly around the United States and probably in some cases around the world. Um, and, and the folks in Oregon played a big role in all of that, too. You know, I suppose an argument can be made that if there's a, a way to, to go legal in order to be able to grow, that the rules should be followed. But, you know, quite frankly, I think where I come out on that is, you know, if talking about someone who's never grown before and, and thinks that they just want to start growing out of nowhere, yeah, maybe you can say to them that's not what we want. But you have to recognize the legacy people and you have to recognize folks who've been out there for a while um, and, uh, you know, who really – uh, in a way, do contribute to the overall good of the industry because it requires the licensed people to stay one step ahead of these guys because if they don't, the customers are all just going to go to the black market and the, the legal industry loses out. You know, we're not talking about violence. We're not talking about gangs going in and, you know, blowing away school children or innocent bystanders on street corners, uh, you know, to, to get a stranglehold uh, on the drug trade or anything like that. And, um, you know, Oregon has to enforce its laws the way it wants to, and it certainly has the right to do so. But, you know, I, in that situation, I'm always cheering for the growers and hoping that, uh, uh, that you know, they can find a way uh, to keep themselves out of the, uh, uh, the crosshairs of the law uh, and keep contributing what they're contributing so that uh, uh, there's always going to be great product available for those of us in the rest of the country. Uh, who don't have access to uh, product that's of, of that quality and that level. So more power to them, and uh, you know, let's see what happens. But this is an important reminder to people that just because your particular state may have decided to go medical or even more to the point adult use, it doesn't mean that marijuana is now legal. 
if you don't have a license or if you're trying to grow outside of whatever framework and requirements your state has instituted, you are breaking the law and you will have your plants confiscated and you will be prosecuted. It'll be interesting to see how some of these cases play out and what kind of defenses they raise. Um, but in the meantime, their plants have already been taken. So, uh, you know, their best case scenario is the prosecutor decides to drop charges. They just have to pay the attorneys however much they owe for getting them that far. And they've lost all of their plants and all of their hard work. Um, so if you're going to grow, please be aware of where you're at, what the rules are, what the uh, what the current uh, applicable laws are. And if you're not sure, ask. Every state, you can go to... Um, uh, the normal webpage, N-O-R-M-L, normal, and they have listings of attorneys who do criminal defense for cannabis matters in almost every state in the country, certainly uh, all the big, excuse me, every city in the country, certainly all the big cities, and more and more some of the smaller ones as attorneys either move there or attorneys who live in those communities uh, get on board with this whole industry and recognize the value in providing a defense uh, for the people who have stepped into it. Uh, and even though other people might be looking at them in a negative light, we know that they're in the right and that uh, uh, they're moving forward and just making things better for all of us. And uh, uh, we really, really appreciate that. So um, moving on from law enforcement, let's swing back to the show for a few minutes because that's always a much more fun place to be. I figured it was important to drop a little Bobby in here just because we can't be all Jerry all the time. And even with a little Phil, Bobby still needs a moment. Um, so I want to play a song uh, that Bobby really started playing. Oh, I guess the first time I heard it was in 1983, uh, my third show ever, actually, uh, at the um, uh, basketball arena in Morgantown, West Virginia, of all places. A uh, whole group of us, including my buddy Steve Stefano, who I mentioned earlier, who did all of the late night driving there and back. Uh, my good buddy Tommy and a whole other, uh, few other people all squeezed into Tommy's rabbit and off we went from Ann Arbor. Uh, and on the way back, we spent quite a bit of time talking about this song and, and dissecting it since for some of us it was the first time we had heard it and others maybe only the second or third. So go ahead, Dan, and let's split, uh, spin this next clip from uh, uh, Alpine Valley on June 27th, 87, Bobby was playing Brother Esau fairly regularly, and somewhere, Rob would know better than I, because now we're really getting into his 
prime time uh, as a deadhead. Somewhere in there, Brother Esau kind of fell off the table, and we just didn't hear it as much uh, anymore, uh, to the best that I can recall, in the later years of going to see The Grateful Dead. And it was never a tune that was really covered a whole lot uh, by any of the other uh, dead conglomerations that we saw. I don't think it was played at the uh, 50th anniversary. I don't remember it being played at the uh, 2002 Terrapin Family Festival. Um, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting tune. It's it's a, another Bobby uh, a take um, on a um, religious theme. And, um, you know, with John Perry Barlow, I guess, uh, you know, kind of exploring the whole uh, Esau and Jacob tale, right? The two sons of Isaac. And uh, Esau was born first and had the birthright and came home hungry and desperate for food. And Jacob had cooked a nice meal and he bargained uh, the meal in exchange for Esau's birthright to make Jacob uh, uh, now the number one son of the family. And of course, when Esau found out, he was really pissed off about it. But um, Isaac basically said, too bad, that's the way it is. And uh, Jacob went on uh, in that more coveted position uh, in place of his brother Esau. So, you know, this song, I think, also had some very strong Vietnam tones to it. Uh, it certainly sounds like, and that was the conclusion that many of us came to that night when we were driving home from Morgantown, West Virginia, at 3 o'clock in the morning and stopped at a Denny's and who the hell knows where to uh, go to the bathroom and to get something to eat and uh, probably got the waitress involved in the conversation, too, because we just seemed like an interesting tune. Um, not quite as peppy as the others, but, uh, you know, at that point, uh, we were all into new tunes. And, in fact, that same night in Morgantown, West Virginia, in 1983, was the first time I heard Touch of Grey. So uh, the dead were throwing a lot of new things out at that time, uh, and it was a fun time to be there. But back here at Alpine Valley in June of 87, uh, it was just a nice welcomed addition to the first set. You know, when Bobby would play it, uh, we were always happy, and we were certainly happy that night. You know, it gives him a moment uh, to really step out. So uh, just, you know, to touch on where we're at with the Alpine Valley show, um, that came following a really, really good West L.A. fadeaway, uh, which trailed the Tom Thumbs Blues. Uh, and then after Brother Esau, they jumped into a really hot Tennessee Jed and wrapped up the set with Let It Grow. Um, one of the great things about this show, 1987, that's a 10-song first set. And we weren't getting a whole lot of 10-song first sets anymore at that point. In fact, I'd be hard-pressed to remember, you know, maybe more than once or twice other uh, other shows after that. And I, I can't even say for certain. Um, you know, that was just a night apparently when Jerry felt good, had a lot of energy, and uh, uh, was really out there doing his thing. And, um, you know, it's great to see him. When Jerry's in a good mood, uh, it comes through so well, I think, uh, on all of his tunes uh, that he plays. Uh, but maybe none more so uh, than this next song that we're going to spin from the show. Uh, it, it's just a Jerry Garcia classic. It's a Grateful Dead classic. And you'll all know what it is right away. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs>
can't think of too many songs that can define a Grateful Dead show for you the way a really, really good Terrapin can. When, you know, Jerry's on his game and uh, like he was this night in Alpine and uh, uh, it, it just, it, it brings a whole special feeling. The, the first time I ever saw it, I was at the Syracuse um, um, Carrier Dome. We were on the other end. It was the other end of the football stadium. Literally, we were sitting behind one end zone. The stage was set up on the other end zone. So we never really had a clear view of the band all night. You know, they, they kind of looked like you know, tiny little dots up there. Uh, but it didn't matter because we were, you know, all sailing just fine at the point. And um, they were just on fire. And they played Terrapin. And I remember at some point in the middle of the song, looking up and looking down on the stage from you know, as far away as I was. And it, Jerry looked like a turtle. You know, it was turtle music, we called it. He looked like a turtle, kind of hunched over and... Um, uh, it, it's just such a great song, Terrapin. It's nice. It's long. It meanders. It tells a story. It's got some really, uh, you know, big upbeat moments. It really gets the crowd up on its feet, um, and it's just a special one. And, and and it holds a lot of special significance for everyone. I, anytime I hear it, especially this time of year, although it's still a little bit early, I it makes me think of the time uh, that Fish covered uh, Terrapin Station in August of '97. In fact, it was on. Uh, I believe August ninth, uh, eighth uh, or ninth, whatever is the, the date that Jerry died, um, in August, and um, it always reminds us of that. And uh, they came out and they killed it, and everybody loved it, and it was really exciting, and uh, so we were really happy about that. So Terrapin is great. Um, glad they could play it. Uh, just really quickly, one last thing I want to talk about, Dan. This is really much more in Rob's wheelhouse, but I'm, we're going to run it past you anyway. Um, we've been seeing some stories that are telling us that uh, multi-state operators are having sluggish revenue losses in Q1 of this year. Nobody can really put their finger on it. Um, people are studying it. Uh, a lot of it has to do with looking at IBNA, which is always way over my head, so I'm not going to pretend to act like I know what I'm talking about there. Um but it's just interesting to see. Uh, I think they said the only MSO in the top 12 that made any kind of a profit last year, or not last year, in Q1, uh, was GTI, which is an Illinois-based Green Thumbs Industry uh, multi-state operator. So we're obviously happy to see them doing well, uh, and, 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 and that's great, too. It's just one of these things, probably, as the market gets larger and larger, uh, we're going to have to, uh, it's going to be hard for everybody to still stay at the top of their game and uh, we'll see who can do it and who can't. But, you know, for people out there who are wondering, uh, you know, can everybody make it just, you know, take to heart the fact uh, that it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, before we leave, I just want to say one other thing. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a great video of Trey Anastasio inviting, inviting a young girl up on stage to sing Bug with him. Her name is Jovi Krusen up in Michigan at the Frederick Mayer Gardens Amphitheater in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I've got cousins and family who live in Grand Rapids. It's a great place, but you have to see this Trey doing a solo acoustical with this young little seven-year-old girl, Jovi, getting up there and singing Bug. It's priceless, and uh, it's what makes fish so great. I'm so excited to see them this summer. Um, but uh, just like our friends here with the multi-state operators, uh, you better be careful because anytime without a warning, they'll come and steal your heart. So let's leave off with uh, as good a, a Grateful Dead tune as there is, going all the way back from the very beginning in the original Primal Dead, still carried through to this day uh, by our good friend Bobby Weir, a little love light. 
uh, it didn't close out the show at uh, Alpine Valley, but it was the uh, the second to last show of the night. And my buddy Mark Lapp was there. And anytime Mark Lapp was there, they always played Love Light. So he was a good luck token for that. Shout out to Mark Lapp. Rob, we miss you. See you next week. Dan, thank you as always. Uh, to all of our listeners, I'll be back to tell you about Dead & Company, which you'll have all heard about anyway, but to give you my spin on it, be good, stay safe, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.